Hello! Thanks for joining us on the HOW Shift podcast, episode number two. Very excited to start episode number two about representativeness. Um, but first, a quick recap about uh, some follow-up items from episode number one from Katie. <laughs> Which is, yeah, basically just to say that um, thank you all for your feedback on our first episode, which was about personality and in particular the big five personality characteristics. Although we introduced that episode with the assumption that we could potentially use personality to better target the way that brands are marketing. What we didn't really expect is that there's been some recent news from Cambridge Analytica and Facebook that suggests that actually for the last year or year and a half or so, they've been trying to use people's personality characteristics, which they've kind of skimmed off people's Facebook profiles as an ad targeting mechanism. So we just wanted to clarify that we didn't know about this when we did our exciting podcast on potential for personality characteristics, but it is quite interesting to see that they are already thinking about the applications for this. Very interesting kind of update in the world news that uh, related to our previous podcast. So without further ado, our topic for this podcast is all about representativeness. Yeah, so representativeness is uh, one topic that's near and dear to my heart. I think it's one of the the first things that introduced me into the world of behavioral economics. A little background on where it comes from. There are the two Nobel laureates who really brought integrated or multidisciplinary thought of behavioral economics onto the main stage are Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky. And their book, Thinking Fast and Slow, has really been the Bible, I think, and Mm -hmm. jumpstart for a lot of behavioral research. Research that's been adapted into so many different fields, whether political, economics, uh, market research, as we're doing here at HRW. There's a lot to dive into. Mm-hmm. And so what we're going to be focusing on today is representativeness. And what that means is it's the tendency for humans to rely on judgments or different details and stereotypes Uh, really narratives, as we like to call them, in place of quality evidence um, and statistics. So that's different base rates and sample sizes and the the hard numbers and facts. Really exposes human beings as the the poor statisticians that they are, not maybe always considering uh, numbers and facts. We all kind of intuitively know that we're bad statisticians. I think a lot of people who are afraid of flying talk about how they know that statistically it's safer than than driving, but they still are afraid of airplanes. Um, and similarly with shark attacks, and that's, I know, a kind of availability um, bias, but it's really our tendency to stereotype and make snap judgments based on really salient characteristics. So I'm really afraid of a big white shark that has big sharp teeth. And I'm not thinking about the statistical probability of me being involved in a shark attack vis-a-vis, you know, an auto accident on the way to the beach. Um, So I think we, yeah, it's one of these things that if you ask someone directly, you know, how good are humans at statistics? I think a lot of people would admit that they're not great, but it's the the specific kind of biases that uh, Kahneman and Traversky and and other great behavioral economists that have followed on have been able to categorize that make this really powerful in terms of us thinking about how we can apply it or take account of it in the way that we conduct and analyze market research so that we 
don't fall prey to the same <laughs> tendencies in the right. way that we try and quantify or um, characterize the real world right. for our clients. No, I think that's a great point and the, the term that Kahneman and Traversky use a lot that I, um, I think perfectly explains it is systematic errors. Mm. Um, so the idea of representativeness is a term that's used to say, oh, this is something we fall prey to over and over and over again, enough that it can be coined this term representativeness. Yeah. So that idea that we always, even if we think we're good statisticians, there are just certain cases. And like you mentioned, and we'll talk about the Linda problem, that is just the epitome of a case that represents something that statisticians fall for, researchers fall for time and time again. It's funny, we we have a quiz that we've used internally and I know we've shared uh, with some different clients trying some of these trick questions. Uh, and the Linda problem or the rolling dice problem, which all fall into representativeness, is something that always catches people yeah. um, in all different areas. And it's just really wanting to believe in a story, really wanting to believe in that narrative and having that you know, kind of make you totally lose sight of logical rules and probabilities. Yep. Um, systematic error. Exactly, that systematic yep. error. And we can put a link to that trick question in the <laughs> show notes so you can send it around to your friends and family and colleagues and, and watch just how susceptible we all are to right. this bias. <laughs> so do you want to explain the Linda problem? Because I think that's when it really kind of comes to life. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we might have primed everyone a little bit, having mm -hmm. not just started with the Linda problem. But um, so Linda is a 31-year-old, single, outspoken, and very bright. She majored in philosophy. As a student, she was deeply concerned with issues of discrimination and social justice and participated in anti-nuclear demonstrations. So the question is, after knowing a little bit about Linda, which is more probable? That A, she is a bank teller, or B, Linda is a bank teller and active in the feminist movement. And uh, just thinking about it, if you're applying the, the rules of logic, the rules of probability, everyone should choose A. The idea that she is one singular thing, a bank teller, is always going to have a higher probability than adding another condition. So adding that she's a bank teller and that extra condition that she's active in the feminist movement is always going to be less likely. Yep. Um, always less probable. Exactly. Um, if you're familiar with Venn diagrams or if you need more of a visual in your mind, it's kind of, you know, two different overlapping circles. That little wedge is going to be much smaller than just one conditional thing. And David McRaney, who writes about a lot of psychology and social science and the way in which biases and heuristics um, influence us. He gives a couple of other great examples that are parallel to the Linda problem and he says what are the odds that you go into a changing room to try on a shirt and burst into flames versus what are the odds that you go into a changing room to try on a shirt and burst into flames after being cursed by a gypsy. <laughs> you know and, and you're like well it's obviously you know, hopefully neither of them are probable, but it's much more probable that you just burst into flames. But this additional kind of narrative explanation is so compelling because it, we as humans have this, you know, systematic bias to go, oh, that seems to make more rational sense mm -hmm. when you, even though what you've really done is added an additional condition. Absolutely, yeah, and I think that's what the 
the Linda problem was a huge eureka moment for everyone involved. And um, I think has been one of those where even, even knowing that this narrative or this little paragraph that was put before this probability question is intended to throw you off. It's still really hard to let go of that fact that you want to reconcile the active in the feminist movement idea with this narrative you've been told. And so just the strength and the power of that narrative is something that has, you know, foiled so many different people, uh, respondents, uh, all these different pieces of research that have been conducted after that. When I was studying in college and university and when I first, in my behavioral class, uh, our senior thesis in Capstone was investigating the Linda problem. And we had applied it to our university and just changed the questions a little bit, made them a little more personal. I think we had some environmentalists, um, Mm -hmm. some other types of narratives to help trip people up. And the research that we did built on the Linda problem, this basic foundation, adding an extra piece or an extra condition. But what we also looked at is the idea of ego depletion. So we interviewed a a mix of respondents, some on a casual weekend, like midday on a Saturday when, you know, they hadn't been doing work for a while or they've already woken up having a leisurely day uh, versus people on a Monday right after all of their classes before they've eaten. And Mm. the idea being there'd be some mental cognitive fatigue um, and a bit of ego depletion throughout the day. So that was the one aspect that we tested. The second aspect we tested is one of the mission statements of our college was to develop some critical thinkers. Um, So we looked at uh, freshmen as a set of respondents compared to seniors as a set of respondents to see how they performed. That's that's really interesting. And I love the the way that you used ego depletion. So again, for anybody not familiar with the terminology, the idea of ego depletion is that if you are having to do a lot of cognitive work and engage your brain actively over time, you fatigue and you essentially start to be a little bit averse to engaging your critical brain and get you know exerting a lot of effort in your thought and and again if you're hungry that might happen if you're under a lot of emotional stress that might happen so the idea of trying to catch people when they are relatively ego full <laughs> i don't know what the <laughs> uh, the contrary to ego depletion is but um yeah, people that are not ego depleted versus those that are kind of exhausted, have been doing a lot of thinking, have been doing a lot of cognitive work or potentially hungry is really interesting. And what what were your driving factors to falling prey to your <laughs> Linda problem trap? <laughs> right. So we definitely had uh, ego depletion tended to have the bigger impact. We did see that people on a Monday afternoon after going through multiple classes and not having had dinner or relaxing yet, they were much more likely to rely on their system ones and fall susceptible to all of these questions. That's amazing because yeah. that's consistent with a lot of the behavioral economics research that says that actually when people are under a lot of pressure or ego depleted, they are much more likely to fall prey to biases and heuristics and shortcuts in decision making. So that's really interesting that yours validated that as well. Definitely, yeah. And unfortunately, we did have to report back to the college that the freshman versus senior or the first years versus last year students, there was uh, not a statistically significant difference there. Uh, But the one thing that we did find interesting after looking at some demographic characteristics was students who tended to be in more math and hard science 
type of majors uh, performed a little bit better, were maybe a little more logical um, in terms of their responses and more likely to catch themselves before falling susceptible as opposed to students in other majors. That is interesting in that the kind of more hard science-based participants were more aware of this tendency maybe, mm-hmm. or at least more more able to kind of actively engage their critical thinking mind in the way that they responded to your question. That's really interesting also in the context of, we were talking just before we started recording about some of the ways that we can overcome this bias or some of the things that kind of increase or decrease the tendency to stereotype in this way. Less of those systematic errors and you had found a quotation from Kahneman and Tversky mm-hmm. about ways that you can prime people in a way that they then are less susceptible. Uh, I think it's Norbert Schwartz and some of his other colleagues, I believe are psychologists, kind of also exploring in this area. Mm-hmm. Um, but they showed that instructing people to think like a statistician enhanced the use of base rate information. So kind of thinking of those probability and more logical type mm-hmm. of mindsets but when they were instructed to think like a clinician it actually had the opposite effect and they were more susceptible to falling to some of these linda problems or these representative driven and framed type of questions and that's really exciting and terrifying because (laughs) obviously at hrw so many of our participants are clinicians and Mm -hmm. Of course, we're trying to prime them to think like clinicians because we want to get them in their kind of native state. I suppose it's also kind of exciting for our clients who are looking to uh, market to clinicians and are often looking to kind of build, not necessarily stereotypes, but build kind of signifiers of like, this is when this product is going to be right for this patient group. And they usually build that around patient characteristics and sometimes conflation of patient characteristics that maybe don't necessarily occur in the same patient as frequently as you might think, but you know, using them as kind of brand signifiers. So always use this product in patients who have an X level of above this much, mm-hmm. um, or also great in women. Um, <laughs> building those kind of product related stereotypes is, seems like it is really obviously possible because of this human tendency to try and stereotype, but difficult in that when we're trying to really access the real world (laughs) in a market research context. Yeah, absolutely. Or maybe, yeah, understanding, um, having them put on that different hat or maybe using some different projective techniques might put someone in a different mindset and have them maybe expose some differences in thinking or the ways that they fall susceptible to these systematic errors Mm -hmm. um, or just really helping us dig deeper um, as the shift team and behavioral insights and just making sure you know we pull out those nuances maybe you know having people reflect um, going through and looking through things from a different perspective you know might vary results and have a lot of implications in the way that you phrase questions and the outcomes of your research yeah ultimately in order to kind of overcome representativeness what we really need to do or yeah are trying to do is to become critical thinkers mm-hmm. in, you know engage their rational brain and try and second guess that gut instinct and it's interesting like you were saying there's quite a lot of research that shows that even some of the some of the greatest thinkers in behavioral economics fall prey to the same thing and um, in his book misbehaving richard thaler talks about 
how when he was sitting down to write a textbook with a load of his colleagues, they sat down and they thought about, okay, how long is it going to take us to write this textbook? And this is more of a, an example of base rate neglect necessarily than representativeness. But, you know, base rate neglect is our tendency to ignore the actual probabilities and the actual statistics of how frequently things happen in favor of an optimistic portrayal or um, a stereotype. And he, anyway, he talks about how they sat down to figure out how long it was going to take them to write their textbook. And they said, oh, you know, if I write a chapter every month, then it'll take me about this long, and then building in a bit of contingency, blah, blah, blah. And they mapped out that it was going to take them, you know, a year and a half to write their textbook. And then he said to them, and it was a group of experienced um, professors, and he said, you know, have any of you written textbooks before? And they, like, half of them had and he said okay well how long did it take you in those times and it turns out about half of them had never finished the textbooks <laughs> that they had started writing and also that it had taken them like three years or three to five years on average I believe um, so they'd really really underestimated some of the common actual evidence even though they were a really experienced group they still fell prey to this tendency mm -hmm. to kind of want to portray it based on on the stereotype so I, I just find that really interesting that even and luckily Richard Thaler was there to ask the question and try and get them to engage their rational minds and get them to consider the kind of base rates and make sure that they were coming up with an accurate estimate yeah absolutely Um, shall we talk then about the application from a research perspective and kind of what we can think about to try and minimize the extent to which this is influencing our research? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Definitely. So yeah, I think the first thing is from a design perspective and obviously Ali, with your academic background in experimental design and this is an area that you're particularly passionate about as well. Definitely, yeah. I think the implications of just how we frame questions, how we set up our methodologies, starting with the design factor, the Linda problem, just the way that question is proposed and framed just has such a, such a strong implication and consistent implication through so much research that it's so it shows how important it is when we're constructing different questions uh, to really think critically about what we're phrasing, how we're phrasing it, and how that might be interpreted. So something as simple as, you know, asking a physician about what number of patients they see a year might just be such an abstract concept, or they might really not think about how many patients they're treating or how frequently they see a patient, but saying, okay, in the past month, how many have you seen? I think making anything narrow and quantified and of their daily basis yeah. in their frame of reference usually tends to be a lot easier of a question for them to answer or maybe accurate of a question for them to answer. Yeah, and using raw patient numbers rather than proportions. And there's been some interesting research as well that looks at the tendency to kind of overestimate from a forecasting perspective when using proportions versus raw numbers. There was, there was a piece presented at Ephemera last year that looked at a comparative study where they'd asked the same questions as raw numbers and as in proportions. Mm -hmm. And they tended to have actually more accurate numbers when 
they were based on run numbers, which makes sense. I think another great example, there's been a lot of studies on the phrasing, like you said, of proportions and the way I always think about it, and I think we've seen come across in a lot of our research, but when you ask about 70% of patients or confirming if 70% of some people do this, it's it's such an abstract concept to so many people, mm-hmm. but just saying seven out of 10 of your patients, yeah. um, or I know if we do some allocation techniques and ways that we've incorporated this in our research, it's saying, okay, if you have 10 tokens, where do you put these 10 tokens? Or yeah. how are you treating these 10 patients? Just understanding that that slight change in phrasing from you know seven out of ten tokens to compared to seventy percent makes such a huge difference in people's minds and their ability to play that out. Like when you're giving a percentage, like an actual person behind it, it just does help people think about it and process things a little bit easier. Massively, and I like to imagine. I think whenever I've done surveys myself, that you do then think back and you think, okay, what was that person that came through the door? And so if you're thinking about the last 10 patients, it becomes a much more of a real world exercise. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where also from a design perspective, using things like feeding in patient record forms into further quantitative research or as a precursor to qualitative research can be really useful in getting the sense of the realistic frequency with which these particular characteristics are occurring within the patient population and even within surveys making sure that we're not conflating any two variables when we ask about the proportion Mm -hmm. so we're asking about the realistic probability with which each of these individual patient variables occurs within the patient population rather than going okay so what proportion of your patients are female and also have levels of this Mm -hmm. or have experienced the side effect and also have this and so we're not steering the conversation or creating the stereotype that they are then going to feed back to us definitely the other one was around the thinking hats so you talked you alluded to this before about how just getting people to kind of adopt a different perspective can be effective at getting them to be a bit more self-critical or engage their rational brain. Definitely, or maybe expose any ways that people are falling susceptible, especially as we are in these curated environments when we're asking people to sit and take a survey or go through an interview with us. Yeah, we do have some of those projective techniques that Mm -hmm. help us get the respondents and other mindsets and expose their different ways of thinking. The other um, implication, as you kind of talked about, is this tendency to fall prey to a narrative. And this always has scared me ever since I started studying (laughs) behavioral economics. You know, there's always so many potentials for questions to steer responses. So obviously we need to be considerate of that. But this tendency to see a narrative, think you know what the answer is, really allow that to shape your whole perspective is so powerful and so systematic in us humans that it's really scary as a market researcher and it always also raises a bit of a red flag for me because you know you go to these conferences and there's all this you know importance of storytelling and the importance of creating a a narrative in your debrief and obviously it is really important for the longevity of our findings to create stories that people can really latch onto so that they can remember their customer insights and apply them but how do we balance that with creating a narrative that actually is shaping what the way we perceive the world both internally when we're doing our own analysis but also in the type of output that we create for our clients so Mm -hmm. I think a lot of it is just kind of being cognizant of this potential bias 
and being critical with ourselves and being critical with one another about the extent to which we're being led by a compelling narrative or compelling narrative idea vis-a-vis -vis the actual base rates, the actual numbers, the actual hierarchy of response. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm, I'm always skeptical of anyone says like, oh, this is a very clear story or clean story because to me it's kind of like, okay, have we challenged it enough? And just making sure it, it's great if you can have a cohesive set of findings and you can have a clear story like that's fantastic or a very clear piece of research. But it always, you know, makes me perk up my behavioral ears and say like, okay, is this something we're just confirming and reaffirming with ourselves, making sure that we appropriately look at all our samples look at all our bases, making sure we're not just falling susceptible to confirmation bias, you know, downplaying some information that might not fit with their narrative yeah. and making sure that as teams, we are always challenging each other as researchers. And I think it, that's where it's also really helpful to record our own hypotheses and record our client hypotheses and take a really hypothesis driven approach because then it forces us to acknowledge when our hypotheses have been challenged or disproven and that I think is a really important moment in our research process where we can say okay we aren't falling prey to this bias but we're actually showing something contrary to what people were expecting to see so we're not just seeing what we expect to see. Absolutely. I think, too, some of my favorite projects that I've done here at HRW um, have been kind of these quanti-qual hybrid projects. Yeah. Um, and for me, m my background is a lot of quantitative work, and qualitative was relatively new to me when I started a couple years ago here. But they've always been my favorite because you go through the whole qualitative process, but then we we typically will program something in Qualtrics mm -hmm. or have you know some hard sample sizes and, and numbers that we'll go through, go through our whole qualitative process of digging through the analysis and starting to write that report and then can also chart up some actual numbers and then look and compare and contrast okay is what we're seeing in those qualitative responses and these quotes that we're pulling out and kind of the more anecdotal evidence is that matching up to how we're seeing people actually rate and rank and I think that's ultimately the kind of foundation of what we need to do differently in order to minimize the impact of representativeness in my mind and I, I'm a big fan of quant into qual as well for similar reasons and you know we talked a little bit about patient record forms but other approaches where we do you know pre-survey or patient record forms maybe on mobile and aggregate them in advance and I think the potential to challenge people with real data either from exist you know pre-survey or pre-information or existing information that's already held within the client company or uh, something that we've kind of done bespoke is really powerful to help overcome this because then you're giving them something real that they can be challenged with so we say you know how often does this happen and then we say okay actually it looks like data suggests that it happens this often i'm also really excited about and we've done a couple of projects with this but the delphi technique which is using a group of experts or forward-thinking physicians usually in either either in an online community approach or in another interview method but essentially the principle is that you ask them a question and then you aggregate their responses and feed it back to them and then ask them to update their prediction mm -hmm. so it's using the collective wisdom and the extent to which they're able to challenge each other to help overcome tendencies to make snap judgments based on stereotypes or misestimate 
probabilities hmm. and I really like it in an online community because it gives them also the forum to challenge each other on okay what would happen that would change this outcome those kinds of questions that can help in particular overcome this bias so you might only get one of say four physicians saying oh but if she's a feminist she's still a a bank teller so we should just go with the overarching category of bank teller and all it takes is one person to point out uh, the critical flaw in the logic and the rest of them will go oh yes of course that makes sense I feel susceptible and using the wisdom of the crowds there yeah <laughs> great well this is all um, really exciting and I think um, I'm interested to hear kind of what our listeners think as well in terms of applications to minimize or overcome this bias. Any um, ideas, questions, thoughts, uh, get in touch with the HW Shift team. And until the next podcast, it's bye from us. Thanks again. Bye. Bye.